Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Today I'm preaching Romans 8, 33 and 34. How we are loved forever, unaccused and uncondemned in Christ. And it is a big deal. It is a very big deal that no accusation against us will stick. And it is a very big deal that there is no condemnation in Christ. There is a, it is a very big deal that Jesus frees people from the power and penalty of sin. So I want to ask you to stand with me if you're able, and I'm going to read God's word. I'm going to read the same verses we've been reading the last several weeks, Romans 8, 31 to 39. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we say amen to all of that. Let me pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 8, 31 to 39 sums up all of Romans so far with a series of questions that are condensed into four challenges that are easily answered, yet they are very tough. The first one we saw in verse 31, can any power rip you from God and rob you of glorification? It was answered in panoramic announcement of God's saving acts. What shall we say to these things? All the things we've seen so far in Romans. And the personal assurance of God's saving acts God is for us, and the promised, the promised assurance, the promised application of God's saving acts. No one's against us. Who is against us? God is working on our behalf. No enemy can prevail against the elect. And then in verse 32, the second challenge, is there any danger of God's love lessening or weakening toward us? We're reminded of God's gracious gift, that Christ died to save us. He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. We have God's guarantee on it. He will do everything necessary to save us. Will he not with him graciously give us all things? And now we're looking at a third challenge today, verses 33 and 34. Can anyone convict us of sin? Can anyone convict us of sin? Next week, we'll look at a fourth challenge, 35 to 39. Can anything separate us from God's love in Christ? But we're going to look at the third question today. Can anyone convict us of sin? Now, this shouldn't cause you to panic. It should cause you to reflect upon 
gospel truth, this overriding truth that Christ frees believers. Christ frees believers. Romans has been telling us all the way through how God saves people from the power and penalty of sin. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, received through faith in Christ, and how God grants us to be unashamed of the gospel and uncondemned by our sin and unconformed to the world. As we believe the gospel, as we rest in the gospel, as we rejoice in the gospel, and as we live the gospel out. Romans chapters 1 through 7 told us very clearly what we see in the mirror every day. Mankind's total depravity and inability to save themselves, but God's saving acts in Christ on behalf of lost sinners. And then you come to Romans 8, and it's this pinnacle of biblical assurance. A pinnacle of biblical assurance. And it's based on all that God has done. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. This is amazing. It is amazing. And yet, we, we need ongoing reminders that we are not just uncondemned, but unaccused. That we have been declared right with God. That God's declared righteousness is solely on the basis of Christ's shed blood in our place. That now we have been declared right with God and it's because of no righteousness of our own. We didn't bring anything to the table but our sin. Our sin was dealt with at the cross. And yet, we waver in unbelief. We waver in unbelief. We believe lies. We believe accusations of, of the world and the flesh and the devil. At Thanksgiving time, we are grateful. We are very grateful in our hearts. But even in the midst of a time like this, deep-seated feelings and long-held opinions invade us and, and knock us off balance. Were there any moments this past week where instead of yielding to God, you, you tried to control things? Maybe away from church, your family seems pre-wired to insist upon its own unfiltered way, fighting and arguing, and maybe you even had a little argument over who got to hold the remote control. Were there times this past week where your mind went back to hurts that others have caused you? And you rehearsed over and over again in your mind your case against them? Are you fixated on, on one person you just don't like? Or maybe a group of people you just don't like? Is there anything you just can't let go of? Did you repeat a sin that a thousand times you have said you would never do again? And did you cry out to God for mercy? Or did you take the low road and self-medicate with things that make you feel worse? Did you forget when you sinned to even confess your sins and to go to Jesus, the only one who forgives? Have calluses built up on your heart so much that you don't even recognize that when you sin or that you even need to repent? If your heart is untethered from the word, you're not actively trying to obey God, you're going to go astray. If your knee-jerk reaction in life is to be defensive and unkind and bitter and picky and caustic and insensitive, 
then you need Romans 8, 33 and 34. Romans 8, 33 and 34 sum up the Christian life, sum up the message of the Bible. If you are always accusing and condemning others, or maybe you feel like you're always being accused and condemned, you need a double dose. Because we need to understand God's love. These two verses today help us understand God's love in Christ. We've been seeing this in Romans 8, in verse 28, to those who love God and trust Jesus, all things will work for your eternal good. And verse 29 tells us that God foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us and will glorify us. Verse 30 tells us that our final glorification is secure. And verse 31 tells us that since God is for you, no one can be successfully against you. And verse 32 says, since God sent his son for you, gave his son for you, he is going to give you everything you need to get you to glory. And then we come to verses 33 and 34. Can anyone convict you of sin? Can anyone convict you of sin? And Paul is describing here a courtroom. And the courtroom is set up so that charges are going to get brought against believers. And what we see is that Christ's death and resurrection and continuing intercession ensure that no charge will stick. There are two truths in this passage that need to be pointed out. Verse 33, believers are unaccused. Verse 34, believers are uncondemned. Unaccused and uncondemned. Let's look at verse 33 first. Believers are unaccused. This tells you that your justification in Christ is secure. That if you're a believer, and and this is addressed to believers, believers are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ and not themselves for salvation. They're trusting that Jesus died in their place on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day, is now ascended to the Father, exalted to the Father's right hand, and is coming back with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who do not. So if you're a believer today, your justification is secure. This is what verse 33 tells us. Who shall bring any charge? That's how the verse starts. Who shall bring any charge? To bring a charge is a technical legal term. To bring a legal charge. It's an accusation, literally a summons. Who is going to subpoena you to a grand jury to testify against yourself when the case has been settled? In those days, a charge against a person would usually be described in a very impersonal way. But here, it has a more personal, in-your-face tone. And in, in the first century, persecution often came in the form of personal attack, as it does even today. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's the key. You can't bring the charge against God's elect. Elect literally means the called out ones, the chosen out ones, those who've been selected and picked out for God's purposes, selected out of a larger number. Eklektos, it's the word in Greek. It was used in secular Greek for anything that was specially chosen like choice food or well-made things or troops specially chosen for some battle. But here, it signifies God's predetermined plan. 
It signifies God's 100% grace in choosing certain from among mankind for himself. This is why it's so secure, why your salvation is so secure. If I haven't said it before, the doctrine of election is really good. And every believer should rejoice in it. C.H. Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, said this, there seems to be an inveterate prejudice in the human mind against this doctrine, and although most other doctrines will be received by professing Christians, some with caution, others with pleasure, yet this one seems to be most frequently disregarded or discarded. We sing the song, The Church's One Foundation. The second stanza begins, Elect from every nation. Because election is a doctrine worthy worthy to sing and worthy to preach. I want you to be encouraged today, if you're a believer, that you have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.4. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The question answers itself. It's God who justifies Justifies the opposite of condemn. God equits, acquits. God vindicates. God frees. God brings people into a right relationship with himself. This, this is, remember, we're in the courtroom here, and so there's a lot of legal terms being used. Justifies is a legal term belonging to law in the courtroom, legally binding verdict of a judge. The judge pronounces the verdict. And it is in the present tense here, which indicates this is what God always does. This is what God always does. He is the justifying God, the one who justifies, literally the justifying one. He is the justifier. This is stressing God as, as, as the actor here. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one, because God is the one who justifies. God is the one who pronounces believers not guilty. He has taken away our guilt. This is the the idea, even in Isaiah 6, the coal has touched your lips. Behold, your, your guilt is taken away. Now here's the question mark that's been hanging over the heads of all mankind forever. How can we be just with God? How can we be right with God? God demands obedience to his law. Disobedience deserves punishment. We we need to be right with God. We need to be counted just in his sight. God has a case against all humanity. All are under the wrath and condemnation of God because of our sin. None can escape. And yet, the Bible tells us that God intervened in love. In love, and he justified a multitude because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so what happens is, as you see from the Bible and the response of people, the soul, your soul must admit, you must admit that you're guilty before God. You must admit that you have sinned. You must accept God's decree concerning his son, And if you're in Christ, you must accept that God has nothing against you. That's a proof that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Believing God's word about your salvation is proof that you have eternal life, that Jesus is the only way of escape. 
When the Holy Spirit shows you your sin, you're convicted of your sin, you're convicted of your guilt. And you come to the end of your resources in your struggle against God, and you realize that judgment must come upon you ultimately if you do not yield to God. And so you agree with God, you confess your sins. We must confess our sins if we're going to be justified. You will never be justified if you do not confess your sins. But when you do confess your sins, you know the full glory of God's pronouncement of not guilty upon every believer. God judges the hearts of all. Woe to the one who stands guilty before God, unjustified. But blessed is the person accepted by the judge of the whole earth who pronounces not guilty, even amidst accusations. Your number one accuser is Satan. Satan is called in the Bible the accuser of God's people. In Job 1 and 2, he's accusing Job. In Zechariah, he's the accuser. In Revelation 12, he's the accuser. And he charges the elect with sin. And the thing is, we are sinful. But he gets nowhere with his charge because the sin has already been dealt with at the cross. All sin is ultimately against God. And David said this in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Other people get hurt by the sin, but the sin is against God. And so God is the only one who can charge believers, and the adversary's accusation against us are going to be dismissed. They're going to be thrown out of court because it is God who justifies The judge himself declares the accused righteous based on faith in Christ. God will not accuse you because you're safe in Christ and his righteousness. Romans 3.24 says, being justified, declared righteous in the proper relationship to God as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Titus 3.7 says, being justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans 3.26 says, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Verse 30, those whom God called, he also justified. In Greek, the word called is closely related to the phrase, will bring charges. Now think about this. Satan's bringing charges. God has called us to faith. God is the justifier of his chosen people. God has put us right with him and destined us for glory. So who can charge God's elect? The question answers itself. Being called overcomes Satan's accusations. We are saved, therefore we are safe in Christ. We're not guilty. It's been declared. This is the question of our justification. Will it stick? Will it, will it hold? It spans all of Romans 1, 1 to 5, 11. Imagine the courtroom setting. The justified sinner stands before the bench. The call goes out for any accusers to step forward, but there aren't any. How could there be? God has already justified his elect. Who can bring a charge? If God is the highest, the supreme, the judge who justifies, and he has declared us not guilty, no accusation will stick. You should never fear the final day of judgment if you're a believer. 
God has accepted every Christian, put them in right relationship with himself. He decided in your favor. The decision is final. It supersedes any judgment against you. And it's because Jesus was falsely accused and judged in our place. The Jews knew the Messiah would be accused. In Isaiah 53, 7, we read that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You fast forward to Matthew 27, verse 12. He was accused by the chief priests and elders. He gave no answer. He allowed himself to be accused in our place, so the elect are safe, even when persecuted. Even when persecuted, Luke 18, 7 says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? God is your justifier and he is your protector. Who will bring a charge? By the way, that phrase, who will bring a charge, uh, takes us back to Isaiah chapter 50. Go to Isaiah 50. Paul is alluding to Isaiah 50 verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Charges won't stick. This is referring to believers walking the way of the servant who would never be put to shame because the Lord justifies him and gives him strength to prevail over his enemies and his accusers. And so your accuser may cry out in anger and hatred toward you, but can never be heard. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. Our sins put, were put on Jesus, and now they are gone forever. God has declared you justified. He put your sins on Christ. Think about this, believers, think about this. Your sins were paid for at the cross. He punished Christ so that he might justify you. Your justification is secure. You've been made right with God. You need to be reminded of this when you slip. You need to be reminded of this when you go down the low road. You need to be reminded of this act whereby God declared you, an ungodly sinner, perfect while you were still ungodly. And added to that, any mistreatment you receive for your faith in Christ? Any way that you're marginalized by society in general? That's wrong. In God's sight, God not only declares you free from punishment when he sits as your judge on the final day, but in the present, he declares all accusations against you invalid. They won't touch you for eternity. And you will prevail over the forces that fight against you because of Jesus. Sin and death prevailed against your own weakness. Ultimately, you will prevail. Your own flesh, all the things that Romans has talked about, Romans 5 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, and the sufferings that come upon you just because you live in, in a world that is opposed to God. This is what Romans 8, 17 to 25 is telling us. The sufferings of this present time, not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. It gives us an eternal perspective on life. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect whom he has chosen for his own? The judge himself has declared us right with him. We are unaccused. Our justification is secure. 
Move on now to verse 34. We are also uncondemned. Uncondemned. A believer's sanctification is secure. This tells us that your sanctification is secure. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Condemnation is the result of judgment. relates to the sentencing for a crime. And the focus is not so much on the verdict, but on the punishment that comes as a result of the verdict. So condemn, if you're condemned, that a judgment has been pronounced, which implies that a crime was committed. There's some loss or damage or, or punishment that's going to come upon you. The verdict that says an evildoer is guilty. The, the, again, these are court terms, law terms. They, they mean the opposite of justify. They mean the opposite of justification. And just remember, God alone is the judge. In his demand for righteousness, sin always leads to condemnation and death. When a, when a, when a crime has been committed, those of you in law enforcement know this, a, the law has been broken, a process of investigation is, is set in motion and might lead to formal charges being filed against a defendant. And the litigation process ensues, and, and it may lead to a verdict of, of, of guilt, but it might lead to a verdict of innocence. And the verdict indicates whether the defendant is either free to go or accountable to the penalty of the law for the crime. Jesus has declared us not guilty of all of our crimes. Now, if you break the law here Tomorrow or in a year, you need to pay uh, the consequences. What this is saying is that spiritually, your sins are not going to keep you out of heaven if you're in Christ. You notice in verse 34, it says, who is condemned, and, and the very next words you see are Christ Jesus. This is very significant. Christ Jesus. This emphasizes when you see, sometimes you see Jesus Christ, sometimes you see Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, that phrase, putting the words in that order, emphasizes God becoming man in the incarnation. And so first you have the heavenly title, Christ, Messiah, anointed one, chosen one. And secondly, the human name given to the Son of God when he became incarnate and born to Mary, Christ, Jesus. So Christ Jesus, God becoming man, is the one who died. Christ died for us. He said this before it happened. Matthew 20, 18, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. He was condemned to death. They said he blasphemed, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Romans 8.3 says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the only one that can condemn is the judge, and he will not condemn you in Christ because he already condemned someone. Christ was condemned for you. But it goes on. More than that was raised. Resurrection, proof of Christ's divine sonship. In fact, Romans starts this way. Romans says Jesus was declared, literally established, openly designated, marked out, with power as the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. 
So his resurrection, he was raised. We are not worshiping a dead Jesus. We are worshiping an alive Jesus who is triumphant, who is glorified. And by the way, in a moment, we'll see what he's doing right now. In fact, one one writer put it this way, the agony of Christ at the cross was but a spasm of an eternal glorification. See, his resurrection confirmed the Father accepted the Son's substitutionary death in our place. In fact, Acts 17.31 says, He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is your absolute assurance. God was satisfied with the death of his Son instead of our death But notice the next phrase, was raised, the next phrase, look at the next phrase, who is at the right hand of God. Now, this is what this verse was pointing to. This is what this verse is getting at. This is the big point of this verse, who is at the right hand of God. So Christ Jesus died, was raised, and is at the right hand of God. This is the important thing this verse is telling us. And it's pointing us back to Psalm 110. Go there, Psalm 110. We're just going to look at one verse, verse 1. David says, The Lord said to my Lord, God said to God, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is at the right hand? So... The psalm pictures Israel's king victorious over his enemies through God's strength. But in the ultimate way, it pictures Jesus Christ who won the victory over his enemies and took his seat at God's right hand. So not just resurrection, but exaltation and now his reign. The Apostles' Creed says this, Our Lord Jesus Christ, after he arose from the dead and ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in the place of authority, in the place of strength, in the place of power. You think about the Old Testament priesthood. The priest never sat down. The biggest difference between the priesthood of Christ and and of Aaron is that Christ sat down when he entered heaven. Think about the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temporary tabernacle in the wilderness overlaid with gold. But we were worth millions of dollars in today's money. But overlaid with gold, no chair in the tabernacle. You go to the temple built later in Jerusalem, no chair in the temple for the priest to sit down. And the reason why the priest never sat down is because their job was never over. Their work was never finished. But Jesus Christ finished his work on the cross. And as God's high priest who arose from the dead, ascended into heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of God. And this verse is telling us this to tell us that our sanctification is secure. Because here's what Jesus is doing right this very moment. Look at the verse again. Look at verse 34. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the point that it's building to. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for believers. He's praying right now for believers. His position at God's right hand of authority, putting the spotlight 
on the effectiveness of his prayers for our security. Christ is using, this is what this verse is telling us, Christ is using his exalted position to benefit God's elect. This, this word intercede is a, is a strong word. It means to bring a petition before a king on behalf of another, on someone's behalf. It means to be an advocate. Christ is our advocate. In Ephesians 1.22, it speaks of the resurrected, exalted, victorious Christ as head over all things to the church. That's a very important phrase. Head over all things to the church. It gives us a, a triumphant assurance that he is doing for us what, what needs to be done. 1 John 2.1 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Have you sinned this week? Have you sinned today? And you're a believer? You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Revelation 12.10, go over there. Revelation 12.10. A picture of Satan being thrown down. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That was fulfilled in part at Jesus' resurrection and ascension and will ultimately be fulfilled one day. But when Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been granted to me, given to me, it was fulfilled. It says that the accuser has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. What's Satan doing? Accusing us day and night before our God. You just think about it in human terms, just among people you know. In man's economy, we are guilty and we are worthy of condemnation. And the accuser, your accuser, Satan, says to God, you know, look at this person. It's like saying about me, look at, look at Mike. You're going to declare him justified? You've got to be kidding. He's a sinner. You know the record. You know what he's done. And God says, yeah, every charge is true and forgiven. God says, look at the scars on my son's hands. I delivered him over for all my elect. How dare you accuse he intercedes for believers. He's not interceding for unbelievers. You can check that out in John 17, verse 9. He intercedes only for those who come to God through him, not for the unbelieving world. Christ is making intercession for believers. Parallel verse in Hebrews 7, 25. Christ is able to save them to the uttermost who come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus was not only the offering, but he was the priest who offered. He came not only as the sacrifice, but as the intercessor. We are forgiven by virtue of his sacrifice. We are kept by virtue of his intercession. This highlights Christ's work for us as a, as a high priest, our great high priest. You, you think of the priests in the Bible, their, their work was twofold. They offered the sacrifice for sin, and they served as mediator between God and man. On behalf of the people. Psalm 110, going back to that psalm, you don't have to go back to it, but just let me remind you, we read verse one. Verse four then says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So that is permanent. Here's what it says, to Christ, 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, descended according to the flesh from the tribe of Judah, could not serve in the Levitical priesthood, but his priesthood comes from a superior lineage. Hebrews 7 quotes Psalm 110 and says that Jesus' priestly qualifications come from the line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was the ancient priest king of Salem, Jerusalem, uh, and he gave a blessing to Abraham. Melchizedek's ministry, his priestly ministry, existed prior to the Levitical priesthood and was superior to that priesthood. Melchizedek's order is superior because Christ holds it not by virtue of mere physical descent, but by, as the Bible tells us, by the power of an indestructible life. He's risen from the dead. And so Psalm 110 foresees the Messiah holding the Melchizedekian priesthood forever. Resurrection means that he will never set aside his priesthood. It is eternal. So you come to God through the priestly ministry of Jesus, your salvation is secure. We talk about the finished work of Christ all the time. At Calvary, he died for our sins in our place. But we don't talk very often about Christ's unfinished work. Christ's unfinished work. That's his continuing ministry of prayer on the behalf of every believer for their sanctification and spiritual growth. And this work is going to continue until God's process is complete. And it's intercession. It's real prayer. Jesus is really praying. He is actively presenting the needs of believers to the Father. He's actively communicating with the Father. This guarantees, Jesus praying for you guarantees that your sanctification is secure. You start wondering? Just go to Romans 8, 33 and 34. Remind yourself, you will be made like Christ. God's ultimate purpose in your life is sure forever. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. This is the point that it was building to. It sums up the whole Bible. It really sums up the whole Bible. The Bible's one big story. In the Old Testament, salvation was promised. Holiness, God is holy, but helplessness. Man is depraved in sin and helpless, but hope, there is hope in a coming Redeemer. And the New Testament, salvation provided our help. Christ died for us, redeemed us. We are now in the household of God. The church is in relationship to Christ. And then heaven someday, creation renewed. God, our help in ages past. Our hope for things to come. It just, it just calls for a deep, pride-banishing, humble worship and surrender to God. You know we must discipline ourselves to be grateful. Even in, on Thanksgiving, you, you kind of have to force yourself to give thanks. Sometimes it just wells up, but not if you're having a bad day. And so rather than grumbling, we must discipline ourselves to be grateful to God and think on the magnificent truth that in Christ we are unaccused and uncondemned. No matter what anyone says, God's word on the matter stands. So when you suffer, when you're falsely accused, when you're condemned by people or, or your own heart condemns you, 
God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. Or the devil condemns you. Know this truth. Remind yourself of this truth. Just know this. Knowing this truth doesn't make you hurt less. It helps you process and think through it. You learn over time to remind yourself of the truth and to internalize it and to meditate on it. And, and God settles your soul. He, he recalibrates your soul. He, he comforts you. This is preaching the gospel to yourself. When you're unaccused, when you're uncondemned, and it, and it hits your heart, it causes you to be grateful. It causes you to, to be free. And it causes you to lean on Christ. You can be grateful. Grateful for, for all of God's merciful blessings. Uh, grateful for life and breath. Grateful that you woke up this morning. Grateful for eternal life in Christ bought with the precious blood of Christ. Grateful to be forgiven. Grateful to be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And grateful for whatever God has given you in your life. People and, and things and Grateful for the ability to work and play. Grateful for the ability to laugh and cry. Grateful for the ability to do whatever you do on, in life. And grateful for the hope you have in Christ that anchors your soul. Grateful for opportunities to serve. Grateful for, to be able to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, as Titus 3.14 says. And, and you, you're free. You're actually free. You're free to, to be fruitful in Christ. You're free to, to understand your identity in Christ, who, who you are in Christ as unaccused and uncondemned, and, and you're free to love and trust Jesus. You're free to hear and obey the word of God, not shackled in sin. You're, you're free to love unbelievers and, and to speak the gospel truth, and, and you're free to turn from sin and say no to sin. You're free to, to forgive those who have wronged you, you are free to go to Jesus for forgiveness. You are free to confess your sins to God and man. You're free to say no to pride and, and arrogance and unrighteous judgment. You're free to serve other people unhindered. You're free to live unshackled by sin and walk in freedom in Christ. You're free to rejoice in God's free mercy and forgiveness. You're free to pray with expectation. Charles Wesley said, no condemnation I dread. We sing this, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. You are free to pray. God's mighty army advances on its knees. You're free, you're grateful, and you lean on Jesus, you, 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 you lean on the everlasting arms. You lean on the Lord who daily bears your burdens. You lean on his promise that he carries you and will bring you safely to heaven. You lean not on your own understanding, but on the word of God. You, you lean on God's approval, not of that of any human. You lean on the one who, as one person put it, is closer to us than breathing and nearer than hands and feet. He knows us completely and can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You can lean on Jesus who fully justified you and presently is praying 
for you. You can lean on Jesus. You can lean on the just judge, knowing that you are a guilty sinner who is uncondemned because of the death and resurrection and eternal reign of Christ. This is, this is, what, we get, this is what we get in Christ. It, if you're unaccused and uncondemned, your justification is secure. You will be fully saved forever. If you are uncondemned, your sanctification is secure. You will be made like Christ because Christ died for the sins of God's people and is now alive, exercising his power and authority over everything for our eternal benefit. I love what Robert Murray Mischang said. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Lord God, we are grateful. Lord, we are free in you. We, we, we lean the whole weight of our souls on you who, who bore our shame and bore the scoffing and in our place stood condemned. Lord Jesus, you sealed our pardon with your blood and we rejoice. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that you've won the victory. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you to save us and to sanctify us as we serve your purposes in this generation. Let me pray in Jesus' name, amen.